0: Please join me in Luke chapter 13 we continue through our series in the Gospel of Luke. This morning we come to a new chapter, Luke 13. We will be looking at verses 1 through 9. The title of our sermon this morning is The Fruit of Repentance. Our key words for our worshipers in training are repent, perish, and fruit. Now, poets and songwriters are typically a very good resource if you are in want of determining the mindset or the direction of any particular culture or any particular time period. Poetry and song have a way of articulating and shaping the minds of every generation in very profound ways, whether we recognize it as being the case or not. Just think of the influence of poets and songwriters. Think of a William Shakespeare or the Beatles or Walt Whitman or Bob Dylan. Each of these was very influential in their time because of their ability to articulate the very ideas and urges that were in the air of their day. Well, at the turn of the 19th century, there's a very influential poet by the name of W.E. Henley. He wrote a very popular poem. Many of you are probably very familiar with it. In it, he communicated what, at the time, and certainly the case today, many Westerners tell each other in their counsel, in their advice to one another all the time. We hear it in songs. We hear it in advertising. We notice it in books. You might see it in people's comments to one another, in person, on the Internet, If you're attuned to it, you will see it and you will hear it almost everywhere you go. And Henley articulated it better than most. Here it is. One stanza of his poem goes like this. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. You heard that before? It's a very famous poem and articulates a very prominent, indeed I would say the most prominent worldview of the majority of those around us. Our neighbors, our co-workers, our institutions, our government. Do you see what's behind it all? Yes, there was a time when people talked about the straight gate They talked about heaven and hell. There was a time when there was a concern for the heavenly scroll with the law of God. But things have changed. I don't care about the gate. I don't care about heaven and hell. I don't care about the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. In other words, no one besides me gets to decide what's right or wrong in my life, my destiny, my future, my eternal state. It is all up to me. I set the standard. I get to decide whether or not I want to live up to that standard. We can hear it in comments that we hear all the time. Things like, you can be whatever you want to be. If you try hard enough and set your heart to it, or just follow your heart, or you just need to do what makes you happy and nobody else can decide that for you. Does that sound like a typical comment we might hear from others? So you see, in a culture that has fully embraced a worldview that says, I am the captain of my soul, talking about something like repentance is worse than nonsense. It's not even worth mentioning. In fact, you mention repentance to most people, they're not even going to take the time to get mad about it. It's not even a word worth entertaining as a possible part of their vocabulary. Repentance is for people who haven't figured out what's right for them, what they need to pursue as their destiny, what they should do to make a name for themselves that they might have an unfettered life of hedonistic pleasure and worldly success. So when Christians talk about repentance, I love the way that Martin Luther spoke of those that hear us. He had a way with words. He said, They stare, blinking at the doctrine of repentance, like cows at a new gate. They don't get it. It doesn't fit the system of thought and the way and shape and form of their life. They just stand and we talk and they blink. You see, we're going to see this morning in our text that Jesus says quite profoundly that all of life, every aspect of life, is to be processed through repentance. You see, for the Christian, repentance is not simply a word in our vocabulary, nor is it something we call, simply call non-believers too. It's a way of life in those things that are bad and also those things that are good. It's the way we address anything and everything that comes to us in life. Put another way, in the words of Timothy Keller, the Bible says no action requires more human greatness nor produces more human greatness than Repentance. No activity requires more. So, what does Jesus tell us about repentance in the passage before us this morning? Let's look beginning in verse 1 of Luke chapter 13. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So Jesus uses here two different tragedies of which his audience was very familiar to explain repentance. The first is one uh, that they were telling Jesus about. The other is an incident that they were uh, very keen to. He brought it up as one they were aware of. As best we can tell, in verse 1, there were Galileans offering their Passover sacrifice in the temple and they were attacked and killed by Pilate's soldiers. Their blood was then mingled with the blood of the lambs they were sacrificing, thus making not only their death but an unclean, unholy situation in their understanding of what it was to make a sacrifice of a pure, unblemished lamb. It was an atrocity. Not just because of their deaths, but because of their blood being mingled with a sacrificial lamb. Now what we can discern from this passage is what Jesus goes after, and it is the mindset of the people. In their minds, if someone was a victim of a tragedy, it surely must have been as a result of their hidden and extraordinary sins. We see it play we see that mindset play out all through the scriptures we see it with the disciples in John chapter 9 we read this as jesus passed by he saw a man blind from birth and his disciples asked him rabbi who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind you see, the only possibility in their minds was that if someone was disabled or suffering, it was as a result of their personal sin. Perhaps it was the result of the sins of one in their family. There was no other answer for it. Remember, this was the same mindset of those who sought to comfort Job, right? Right? It was a constant theme in their their questioning throughout the pages of Job. One of his friends said, consider now who being innocent has ever perished. Where were the upright ever destroyed? Very comforting, right? Do you see what's going on here? It's really easy at this point to do what? To look at those who suffer to assume it's as a result of their sin and then to justify our own lives because we are spared from any tragedy. In other words, it was their mindset that their supposed moral goodness was what spared them from having their blood mingled with their sacrifice. That spared them from having a tower fall on them. And that mindset is such a self satisfying way for us to live our lives, isn't it? Surely they must have suffered great death and defilement because of something they had done wrong. Jesus dealt with the issue of the tower. There was at Siloam a group of people who were either in a tower, maybe they were gathered around it, but the tower collapsed. It was a tremendous calamity. Many people were spared, but many people were injured and 18 of them were killed. And so Jesus uses both of these instances to bring out his point. And he does this by dealing with the primary question of their hearts. And instinctively, the very same question that's on all of our hearts when we witness or are a part of or even just hear about a tragedy. What is the question we ask? Why? Why did that happen to them? And in the minds of the hearts of those, Jesus was, was talking to they were asking, why did that happen to them? But there was a big assumption tied to it. Were those people killed worse sinners than the people who were spared? That's the question that was posed to Jesus. And that's the question he answers. And quite honestly, it's a very natural question. Were those people killed, were they worse sinners than others? Are those who suffer and die around us, are they worse sinners than others? It's very instinctive, isn't it? When good things happen to us or bad things happen to us, our instinct is immediately to begin to compare ourselves with others. In other words, when something bad happens to you, what is your very first thought? Is it possible that you're thinking, what have I done wrong? Am I so much worse than other people? Am I being punished? Now, Jesus is not denying the fact that sins sometimes bring tragedy. It does. But he flatly refuted the idea that all tragedy is due to the sins of its victims. In fact, he emphatically answered those who wondered about the sins Causing this man's blindness in, in John chapter 9. And he said, neither this man nor his parents sinned. And here in our passage this morning in verses 2 and 3. He says, do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? No, I tell you. This speaks to the misguided tendency of so many ill-informed Christians who heap imagined guilt upon themselves for the calamities that have fallen upon them and their children and their loved ones. We must accept reality, and it's this. Death happens. Tragedies come to all. And sometimes unthinkable things will happen to the most godly, committed people in all the world. And we cannot escape it. But look here at what Jesus says next. And this is really the point of the entire passage. Right here in the second part of verse 3, he says, But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And we're going to get to what that means, but first, several things here. Jesus is telling us when bad things happen, when tragedy strikes, the right response is not to look at other people, not to compare ourselves with other people, but to do what? To repent. It is always in order to repent. So the people around Jesus said, we know of these awful things happening. And Jesus says, yes. And when you see these awful things happen, it should lead you to repentance. But is that it? Is it only that we repent when we see tragedy? Consider the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 2. He says something really amazing. He writes this. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? You see, Paul says that when good things happen to you, when God is kind to you and the tower doesn't fall on you, But instead, you inherit the tower and find out that it's worth $20 million. Paul says, unless that leads you to repentance, then you're treating God's kindness with contempt. Do you know what that means? That means that good things are designed just like bad things to lead us to repentance. It's always right. It is always in order that we live lives of repentance. So the point on both ends of the spectrum, tragedy and absolutely lavish blessings, the point of it all is that we're supposed to immediately be reminded in ourselves who we are. You're a sinner saved by grace. And Jesus died to win you. And Jesus teaches us here We must never receive anything good. We must never be the recipients of anything bad except through repentance. And it is the only way in which we will not be harmed. Let me put it this way. If we take all that's good in this life and we leave out repentance, or if we endure a great tragedy and suffering and leave out repentance, in the end... We will be destroyed. We will perish. Maybe not with a tower, but some other way. And what the Bible is saying is what Luther said when he nailed his 95 Theses to the Wittenberg door to begin the Protestant Reformation. The first thing on his 95 thesis was this. All of life is repentance. The message of Jesus is summed up in one thing he said repeatedly. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. We see the same thing when Jesus sends out the disciples to proclaim the truth. I send you out to preach that everyone should repent. Consider the words of Peter in his sermon in Acts chapter 2. Right after Jesus ascends to the heavens... He preaches a sermon. The people are cut to the hearts because of it. And they said, What shall we do? What was Peter's response? Repent. So you see, there is a sense in which God will not deal with us unless we repent. There is nothing God can offer you that comes to you apart from a life of repentance. It is the gate, it is the key. This is what the Bible is saying. Are you happy? Are you sad? Are you mad? Are you confused? Repent. But see, this probably sounds irrational or confusing to some because of a great understanding of what repentance truly is. So what is it? What do we mean by this? Most of us probably assume it's simply confessing guilt or some feeling of a pit in our stomach or an anxiety in our heart that causes us to beat ourselves up, to flog ourselves, to remind us how much of sinners we actually are. What is repentance? There's a very big assumption of Jesus here in this passage. He's implying something. It's the same thing we looked at last week, that all of us, every single one of us, are sinners. Sure, there's differences between us as sinners, but they're all differences of degree. At the end of the day, all of us fall short of the glory of God. We're all guilty. All of us deserve death. So Jesus shows us that repentance is not simply about a general feeling of sorrow and pitifulness, but rather it is an accepting of two distinct realities. The first one is this that you and I cannot repent until we understand that we and everyone we know from the youngest to the oldest deserves to have the tower fall on us. So when we walk through a national tragedy like 9-11 or something else of that large scale, we need to be reminded very quickly that the issue is not that those individuals suffered and died because of some specific sin in their life. But they received what each and every single one of us deserves. You see Jesus' point? No, those people weren't worse sinners than you. And so unless you repent, you will also be consumed. You know, it's, it's really bad philosophy, even for secularists. To ask a question like this, and you've all heard it, why do bad things happen to good people? There's a huge unquestioned assumption in a statement like that. It's the same assumption that people make when they say things like, I cannot accept that God exists because of all of the human tragedy and suffering of the world. So the assumption in that is that there certainly are a few Hitlers out there in the world and they probably deserve to die a pretty horrific death. But everyone else, why everyone else? Why do they have to suffer? But here's the problem. There's a huge assumption that says that we're inherently good. That's not what the Bible teaches us. The real question really should be not, why does God allow so much suffering? But if we're more honest with daily life throughout the history of the world, we should be asking, why does God allow so little? What happens when there's a 9-11 or a school shooting or a massive earthquake or a tsunami that takes out thousands of people? The reporters flood the television news channels and airwaves and they say things like, where was God in all of this? But there's a huge philosophical assumption there. And my response would be, you shouldn't get bent out of shape about the suffering in this world until you can prove your assumption that God owes you what you think is a good life. Because Jesus doesn't work from that platform, does he? Jesus assumes that we're all sinners, so instead of looking at tragedy and saying, why did God let this happen? Instead, we should look at tragedy and suffering and say, man really is very, very evil and wicked at the core of his heart. And I'm no different than any other man. Any man who brings a gun into a school or flies a plane into a building, my heart is just the same as his. Do you know what sin is? Do you know what that looks like in every human heart? It looks like this. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. But you see, if God has created us, we owe him everything. We owe him first place in our lives. But so often he is not first place in our lives. We put ourselves in first place and then we may have the audacity to say this one, this God, he owes us good, comfortable lives. The one that's treated with such irreverence and disdain. And so in all of this, Jesus is saying, you don't understand your true condition. We all deserve to have towers fall on us, and it's amazing. It is absolutely stunning that God doesn't let it happen. Because you know, for every single day, like September 11, 2001, how many days go by week after week and month after month and year after year that we don't have days like September 11, 2001. How often do you hear about those days and the call each and every day on the local news that we rejoice that God has gotten us through another day without tragedy? We as a people who have lived life at enmity with God... We actually get to wake up in the morning and enjoy what God has created and the fact that he sustains us for yet another day. It's a wonder that God lets that happen. It's a wonder that everything doesn't fall on us immediately considering considering our sin, considering the way we treat one another, considering the way we interact with him. And so that's the assumption we need to take into this and understand Jesus' call to repentance. The first thing you have to know to repent is that you don't deserve a good life from him. You don't deserve anything from him. And everything that you have is grace upon grace upon grace. So if you can't grasp that truth, then you don't know what it is to repent. Repent. You might have some sort of remorse. You might have some sort of bad, icky feeling when you sin. But feeling terrible is not the point. There's something else here, and it's the second thing we need to understand about repentance. And we see it in the the second part of our passage, beginning in verse 6. Jesus told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. And he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not... You can cut it down. So here's the point up front, and then I'll explain. You and I ought to be absolutely amazed by the fact that God is committed in Jesus Christ to rescue us from the very thing that we deserve. And that's the point of this parable as it relates to repentance. There's three symbols in this parable Jesus' hearers and us by virtue of our desire to follow him were to examine themselves through the metaphor of the fig tree. The owner of the tree represents God the Father and the vine dresser or the caretaker is Jesus Christ. They are in concert, but without interrupting their harmony, the, the owner argues from the logic of righteousness. While the vine dresser argues from the logic of mercy. Both outcomes are acceptable. Both of them are justifiable. But in the end, the caretaker is committed to getting fruit on that fig tree and avoiding having to cut it down. I will dig around it. I will fertilize it. I will irrigate it. I will get fruit on that tree. That fruit, of course, is a love for God. And true repentance. So what we see here is we have Jesus saying of us, I don't want to give them what they deserve. Do you believe the Bible? It tells us that God does not delight in the destruction of the wicked. I don't want to give them what they deserve. I want to bring them to repentance because if they repent, then they won't get what they deserve. I'll save them from what they deserve. And it's mercy. It's a beautiful display of the merciful kindness and tenderness of Jesus towards sinners. John Bunyan saw that the caretaker's promise to dig around the tree indicated that its root structure was perhaps too earthbound. Bunyan addresses the tree in one of his sermons. He says, Barren fig tree, see how the Lord Jesus by these very words suggests the cause of your fruitless soul. The things of this world lie too close at your heart. The earth with its things have bound up your roots. You are an earthbound soul. Then Bunyan has Jesus, the caretaker, address the owner, the father. Lord, I will loose his roots. I will dig up the earth. I will lay his roots bare. My hand shall be upon him by sickness, by disappointments, by cross providences. I will dig about him until he stands shaking and tottering, until he be ready to fall. Thus, I say, deals the Lord Jesus oftentimes with the barren professor. He digs around him. He gives one blow at his heart, another blow at his lust, a third at his pleasures, a fourth at his comforts, another at his self-conceitedness. Thus, he digs around him. This is the way to take bad earth from the roots and to loosen his roots from the earth. Barren fig tree, see here the care, the love, the labor, and way which the Lord Jesus, the dresser of the vineyard, is fair to take with you, if happily you may be made fruitful. It's the astonishing mercy and grace of God in Jesus Christ. He digs up the roots to free us. And he pounds on us through life's ups and downs. He pries away at our earthly attachments so we might do what? So that we might become fruitful. Has Jesus been digging around your roots of your earthbound soul with inexplicable providences in your relationships? In your marriage? your family, with your neighbors, with someone in this room? What is that about? If we really believe that God is providentially at work in every instance of our lives, we have to recognize that all of the pain and all of the tension, all of the disagreements, that God is at work doing something. You see, most of us live our lives as though we're owed something. And as long as things are good and happy, we want to give lip service to the goodness of God. But when things are bad, we want to know where he is and why he has supposedly left us there. But have we considered that perhaps our roots are very earthbound and perhaps we are not exactly who we think we are? For some, that might mean that you've given a profession with your lips that you know Jesus Christ, but your heart is far from him. There are others of you here this morning who know very clearly that you are earthbound and you like it that way. You want to be the captain of your soul and you're content with telling Jesus to leave you alone to do your own thing. You've made a deadly move, but there is still time for repentance. There's time to turn to Jesus, that he would be the captain of your soul, because only he knows the way, only he knows the truth, and only he has eternal life to offer. And God is committed to rescuing sinners from what we deserve, from all of the falling towers of the world. And so the call on every man, woman, and child is to repent and turn to Christ. And you see, there's a beautiful reality here that the vine dresser, Jesus, doesn't leave us to ourselves. He fertilizes and he grows us by his very own hand. He nurtures us through the means of grace, through prayer and scripture, And through all of the means that we partake in worship, that God has provided, that we know and we love and we experience the grace of God as he strengthens and nourishes us, that we can grow faithfully in holiness and love. So here's the thing in all of this. If you just know the bad news without the good news, then you're not repenting. If you just know the good news without the bad news, if you say, "Of course, God will forgive me. That's His job," and you don't know what, it, what at what cost sinners were brought to God by, repentance will not transform you either. In other words, here's the test: How do you know whether or not you have truly repented? Two things. You've seen and know and recognize that you're a wicked sinner. And you see and you know and you recognize that you're cherished and you are loved. That's repentance. And that's the point here. If these two things together are working in concert with one another, it will humble you and it will build you up. Because we so often think of repentance only as something we do when we sin, but that is not the full picture. It's not only about removing the pain of guilt, repentance is so much more, it cleans us out. It's God's law crushing us that we can see our true condition. But it's the gospel reminding us again that we are purchased by the blood of Christ. We are set free to walk in a joyful obedience and thankfulness toward him for his glory. Ask yourself, when you repent, do you find that you can take criticism better? Do you have more confidence now that you're repenting? You, you have less self-consciousness. Repentance always leads to that. Because we realize who we really are. It doesn't matter what you think of me. I'm far worse than any of you assume I am. On the other hand, do you find that the more I repent, the more you're doing what you think is repentance, the more sensitive you get to criticism? The less confident you are, the more down on yourself you get, the more unlovely you feel. That's not repentance. That's you focusing on God's law to humble you to the end of yourself, but you fail to live upon God who is your hope, who is your healing balm, our only source of true joy and restoration which comes in the gospel of Christ. We must preach the Gospel to ourselves through the act of repentance, or we 've not truly repented. I can be sorry all day long, but if there 's no restoration, my sorriness is meaningless so let 's finish with this: How is repentance grown in our hearts well we 've seen it already when tragedy strikes. Or when a tremendous blessing comes, we repent. And it sounds like this, Lord, I do not in any way deserve the tremendous blessing that you have mercifully provided for me. Forgive me, Lord, for so often thinking and praising so little and for expecting and demanding so much. You have given me far beyond what I need or could even fathom. It's sheer grace. I have intimacy. I have union. I have communion with an infinite God. When good things happen to you, do you repent? Which means, do you say, I am not worthy? This is so wonderful. Or is your heart saying, It's about time. I want you to know that's an extremely important and practical little test for you to know whether or not life is repentance for you. When good things happen to you, do you say, well, it's about time? We hear that in the comments all the time of others, right? You deserve this. You deserve that raise. You deserve that promotion. You, you hear it negatively sometimes. You don't deserve to be treated that way. You know what? You're right. You deserve to be treated far worse than anything you will ever experience in this life. What's happening in those kinds of comments? We're robbing God of his glory. But not only that, we're robbing ourselves of the sweetness that comes when we see all things, all things, good things, bad things. When we see all things coming from the hand of almighty sovereign God to change us, to transform us, to shape us, to make us godly, to make us holy. There's no sweetness in saying, It's about time. You see, only when we repent in the face of good things does God get the credit in your heart and you build up a heart capital to trust in Him. When you believe that God owes you and yet things go badly, you will never be able to trust Him. Because you know what? Life is hard. You just get angry and you'll feel sorry for yourself and you'll walk around like Eeyore dragging and moping. Instead, we should say, Lord, I deserve a lot worse than this, but I'm not going to get a lot worse than this because Jesus died for me in my place. And the things I've lost were yours to give and they were yours to take away. It wasn't anything I deserved, but I know you're going to give me more than I ever deserved. I have things waiting for me in the future, guaranteed. And so this will never overthrow me. John Newton said the gospel makes the worst times bearable and the best times leavable." The gospel brings us together and creates an incredible stability in us. In other words, the bad times, it brings you up. They're not so bad. The good times, you come down because they're not that good compared to what you're getting and what you have in Jesus Christ. You see, in the parable, the owner says, This thing deserves to be cut down. And Jesus doesn't argue, he says, Just give me another year. But do you know what that means? It's not just a promise, it's also a warning. The warning is God comes to you and he's bringing both good and bad things into your life that you will repent. But you must never, ever, ever say, I'll repent next year. Because what happens next year when there's no fruit on the fig tree? It gets cut down. You might have finally hardened yourself at that point. And the owner might come back and say, cut the tree down and burn it. Now is the time of repentance. God is under no obligation to keep fertilizing your heart forever. But here's the hope. That tree should have been cut down a long time ago. But here's Jesus working to fertilize it. And he says, if it bears fruit next year, fine, great. Do you know what that means? That means fine. No matter how many times you should have repented, no matter how many promises you've broken to God, no matter how late in life it is, no matter what your record is, no matter what you've done, no matter how black and bleak it is, You see, in the worst sense, no matter how many wrongs you've done, Jesus says, if you repent now, it's fine. He will never turn you back. If you repent and if you turn to him, he wipes your past clean. Do you see the balance here? You cannot play with him. But if you come to him, what does Jesus say? He that comes to me, I will not cast away. It doesn't matter what you've done. The old confessions of faith say, as there is no sin so small, but it deserves damnation. So there is no sin so great that it can bring damnation upon those who truly repent. There is nothing in your life that will condemn you if you truly repent in Jesus Christ. Repentance is the way. And the fruit of repentance is true life, freeing and full in Jesus Christ. It is he who is the master of our fate. It is he who is the captain of our souls. Let's pray together. Father, your word is powerful to grind down our hearts and to reveal to us that oftentimes our roots are very earthbound and that so often we live our lives in full expectation that we deserve something far greater than what we have. And yet, as your children, we so often forget to recognize that we have the greatest thing we can ever have. And that is the righteousness of Christ, imputed to us by your grace in great mercy and for your glory. And so, Father, when bad things come into our lives and when we sin and when we endure tragedy and suffering and hardship, may it be that it leads us to repentance. What we recognize, we so often rely upon ourselves and so seldom turn to you. That we would recognize that we receive in this life, in pain and suffering and even in death, far less than what we truly deserve. Lord, make us to be a people who are honest about our hearts and our condition. And so in the same way, Lord, when good and great blessings come into our life and we recognize them with great joy and satisfaction, Lord, Instantly, would you bring us to the place where we recognize I am not worthy. I'm not worthy. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for all of your blessings in my life. And so in the good and in the bad, may we recognize that Jesus truly is the captain of our souls. And may we rest in him As our full and final assurance that as your children, if we have truly repented of our sin and placed our faith in Christ alone, that we will stand before you one day. And that as our judge will say, it's fine. It's all cleaned away. Jesus has died to win you. And you are his. And you are mine amaze us with the gospel yet again, O God, that you would be glorified and our hearts would be full and our joy would be complete in him who is our Savior, our promise, and our covenant-keeping Lord forever and ever. It's in his name we pray. Amen.